ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Wednesday, the 8th of November. I'm David Lipson, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. We were warned, but the news of another interest rate rise, the first in five months, will add to the cost of living pressures for many Australians. As Christmas looms, the Reserve Bank's decision to hike rates by a quarter of a percentage point to 4.35% takes the official cash rate to the highest it's been in 12 years. Isabel Masali prepared this report. As the smell of fresh bread and hot chips wafts through his shop, Jalal Fahad admits he didn't think he'd be working 12-hour days behind the fryer at this kebab and fish and chip shop in the Perth suburb of Mirabuka. But he's had to make changes to cope with financial pressures. I don't know how can we fix it. Before, I make a lot of money. I have house, I have land, I have good cars, but in the moment... Sometimes I know got nothing. I'm the owner. I know got. I'm working. So yeah, you know what happened. That must be very hard. Yes, now very hard. And sometimes I'm sad when kids they come to buy something. You know, small chips now six dollars. So before we sell at one dollar fifty or two dollars. Like many businesses, he's increased his prices because his costs have increased too. The Reserve Bank is hiking interest rates as it tries to curb inflation, saying it's past its peak but is still too high and proving more persistent than expected a few months ago. For Shalal Fahad, inflation and the impact of interest rate rises on his customers could mean a very quiet holiday season. I think more hard, but no choice. We just keep going, you know? At the local shops, customers say they're cutting back from changing the groceries they buy to accessing streaming services. Coping with another rate rise is tough to imagine. Petrified, yeah, petrified. Um, yeah, it's, it's going to hit hard, that's for sure. That's Joanne, who runs her own daycare centre. She's anxious about buying Christmas presents for her grandkids, let alone getting through a regular week. My incoming doesn't cover the outgoings anymore, so I have to use my credit card at the end of every week. Um, yeah, being a one-income household, it's, it's hard, <laughs> very hard, yeah. Caitlin and her family are building their first home. So how is she taking news of another rate rise? Pissed off, to be honest, because <laughs> I work two jobs just to get us through. You know, it's not the easiest thing to do and then keep hearing about interest rates rising. It doesn't make it any easier. How has it affected your life and your family's lives? Oh, it's affected it dramatically. Like... I mean, it's lucky we got to move in with mum and dad when we could. This shopper and her partner have also moved in with their parents. I know we're all doing it tough, but we just have to... Hopefully things will start to get better in probably in the next couple of years where hopefully the interest rates drop. That's what I'm hoping. Those expecting relief soon have been told by the RBA the board remains resolute in its determination to return inflation to target and will do what's necessary. Isabel Masali reporting there. 
Vigils are being held in cities across Israel as the country marks one month since the Hamas terrorist attacks that saw 1,400 people killed and more than 200 taken hostage. In a televised address, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says there'll be no ceasefire in Gaza until all the hostages are returned. In Gaza, more than 10,000 people have been killed, according to the Hamas-run health ministry. Our Middle East correspondent, Alison Horn, is at the vigil in Jerusalem. Well, I'm at the Western Wall, which is one of Judaism's most holy sites, and it's incredibly emotional here. It's nighttime at the moment, and hundreds of people have come, some from all across the country, to join in this memorial to remember one month since the Hamas attack in southern Israel. It's to remember the 1,400 people that were killed, but also the 240 people that were taken at captive by Hamas and that are still being held there somewhere inside Gaza. We have heard some really emotional testimony from families of those being held captive um, here tonight. We've also been listening to some really heartfelt prayers um, and singing. People have been hugging and crying and you can tell the grief here is still so raw. Almost everybody that you speak to has some sort of connection to what happened one month ago today, whether or not they have lost someone, they know a family that was displaced, or that they have connections to someone who has been taken hostage. That's how much this event has affected this country. It will never be the same. I have been speaking with numerous uh, families of hostages, and I was speaking with one woman earlier. Her name is Batsheva Yahalomi. Her husband, Ohad, and her 12-year-old son, Aid, were actually taken hostage from their home in kibbutz near Or. Um, but Batsheva, she managed to escape with her two other children, but it's now been 32 agonising days since she saw her 12-year-old son. Her husband, Ohad, was shot. She doesn't know if he is alive. Um, this is what she told me about her experience. The three children and I sat very, very close together. Four terrorists of Hamas entered wearing uniforms with explosive belts, with guns. I think that maybe I should have gone with the terrorist into Gaza just so that Aitan won't be alone, that we'll all be together. Even if the end means that we will all die, at least we'll be together. Uh, here's a little of what Benjamin Netanyahu has been saying. There will not be a ceasefire until all hostages come home. I would like to now speak to all the families in this ongoing nightmare that they are suffering. We are working in every possible way on every front in order to bring your cherished family members, our cherished family members, home from this pain and darkness we will come out much more, much stronger and much more united. And together we will win. Alison, inside Gaza, Israel says its troops continue to advance on Gaza City. Already the Hamas-run Ministry of Health says more than 10,000 people have been killed. More than 4,000 of them are children. And as this campaign goes on, a lot of people are asking... 
what will happen when the war ends in Gaza. Israel has said that it wants to destroy Hamas, which leaves the question of what will happen to Gaza the day after the war ends. Uh, interestingly, we did get one little snippet from Benjamin Netanyahu in an interview with an American TV network saying that he thinks that for the foreseeable future, Israel will take on security responsibilities within Gaza. It does indicate now that Israel is starting to look ahead to after the war and how things may operate there. That's our correspondent Alison Horn in Jerusalem. Well, with both Israel and Hamas rejecting growing calls for a halt in the fighting, the World Health Organisation has said nothing justifies the horror being endured by civilians. In Gaza, many are sheltering in schools, living between abandoned classrooms and concrete playgrounds. Here's Matt Bamford. At this school in the southern Gaza city of Khan Yunus, people mingle in the crowded playground. Behind them, what were once classrooms are now living spaces for thousands of people displaced by the fighting. Yasmin is among them. Today it has been more than a month in this war. We have been living in terror, sadness and fear. It means we cannot sleep for even a single minute. Every time we try to close our eyes, we wake up to the sound of rockets, people screaming and missiles. I've been running in the streets since dawn for long hours. People are running in the streets not knowing where to go. Palestinian rights groups say about one and a half million people have had to leave their homes because of the fighting. It's now considered the largest mass displacement of Palestinians in more than 70 years. We expect that what's coming will be even worse than this. This is like the days of 1948, like the days of Sabra and Shatila. We live in such injustice. Either they put everyone in one place and kill us, or enough is enough. This is not a life. More than 10,000 people have been killed in Gaza, 40% of them children, according to the Hamas-run health ministry. Ashraf al-Qudra is a spokesman for the health ministry. The Israeli occupation is killing one child every 10 minutes and injuring two others. Today, the Gaza Strip has become an actual cemetery for women and children. The death toll has alarmed much of the international community. World Health Organization spokesman Christian Lindmeyer says conditions in Gaza are hard to imagine. Nothing justifies the horror being endured by the civilians in Gaza. People in Gaza are dying in their thousands, and those alive are suffering from trauma, disease, lack of food and water. The level of death and suffering is hard to fathom. The WHO says there have been 100 strikes on health facilities since the conflict began and 22 of Gaza's 36 hospitals are still functioning. Matt Bamford there. A new report says the world's oceans are being transformed by climate change with more underwater heatwaves putting pressure on marine life and the Great Barrier Reef. The report comes from the Climate Council, which is calling on the federal government to rapidly phase out fossil fuel production and speed up plans to reach the target of net zero greenhouse gas emissions. Here's Connor Byrne. The water is 26 degrees on Snow Reef, an hour east of Port Douglas in far north Queensland. Can I get diving? Yes. <laughs> 
It's a nice day for snorkelling and scuba diving for a group of scientists, including marine biologist Casey Barnes, who's been studying the Great Barrier Reef since the 2016 coral bleaching event. I have seen positive outcomes, a lot of recovery. However, moving forward, I am aware that that might not be the case. A new report from the Climate Council says the world's oceans are absorbing mind-boggling amounts of excess heat generated by human-induced global warming and that marine heat waves are becoming more severe and frequent. Dr Simon Bradshaw is a research director at the Climate Council. We've seen four mass bleaching events over the last decades. That means very little time for corals to recover. We've also seen species on the move. And look, this is measured in loss of tourism dollars and livelihoods, but ultimately we depend on a healthy ocean. We depend on it for our food. The ocean creates the weather patterns that we depend upon. Professor Jody Rummer from James Cook University has been studying the effects of thermal stress on fish, rays and sharks. When we see increased temperatures, we see increased rates of everything that goes on in a fish's body. So that means that they increase their metabolism, that means they're hungrier, that means they need more energy to survive. And that's not a sustainable pathway. The Climate Council says the rapid phasing out of fossil fuel production is critical to limiting further ocean warming. It also wants the federal government to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2035, much earlier than its 2050 target. In a statement, a spokesperson for the Climate Change Minister Chris Bowen says the Albanese government has legislated ambitious emissions reductions targets and beefed up the emissions limits it's placing on major industries. Measures that it says will deliver a 200 million tonne reduction in emissions by the end of this decade. Dr Simon Bradshaw calls these positive steps, but says more needs to be done. Right now, our national environment law, which is meant to protect the Great Barrier Reef and all these other incredible wonders that we rely on, it doesn't even consider climate change and the impact of new coal and gas developments on our climate and the damage that that causes. So it's absolutely essential that our government updates our national environment laws urgently. That's Dr Simon Bradshaw from the Climate Council ending that report from Connor Byrne. For some students, the thought of going to school is so unbearable they simply don't go. It's referred to as school refusal and while the precise number of students who aren't attending is unclear, some new research released to AM shows that it's a problem many Australian families are experiencing. Here's our national education and parenting reporter, Connor Duffy. Mum of four, Georgina Kerr, was busy enough. Then her 14-year-old son started missing two or three days of school a week. Yeah, it affected my employment, it affected my own physical health. There are many reasons why students may have difficulty attending school, but Georgina Kerr felt both she and her son were being blamed. When you're in this situation, you get well-meaning advice from, from schools, from professionals saying tough love, just make home not a fun place. She tried everything confiscating the family Xbox, taking away her son's house key, even driving him to the school gate. But he left as soon as her car was out of sight. He actually sat on the front porch all day, very little water, on a a hot Perth day rather than go to school. And that was the point at which I realised this isn't just refusing to go to school, he physically can't go to school um, and the tough love isn't working. Earlier this year, a bipartisan Senate inquiry found school refusal was different to truancy as students don't hide their non-attendance or engage in antisocial behaviour. 
and often have a disability or mental health condition. The inquiry recommended a national research program to track numbers of school refusers. Now a poll commissioned by former teacher and Green Senator Penny Orman-Payne has surveyed over 1,000 parents, finding 39% had experienced school refusal caused by anxiety or stress in the past year. The fact that it was so high was shocking. The fact that um, it's happening, though, is not. Uh, we certainly heard during the Senate inquiry that large numbers of families have been experiencing school can't for some time. Senator Orman Payne is calling for the inquiry's bipartisan recommendations to be adopted, including extra mental health support and early interventions. Tiffany Westphal is a board member and volunteer at School Can't, a peer support network for parents of school refusers, which has about 10,000 members. I guess it's not surprising to us. Um, that probably equates to around 1.5 million students around Australia. That's evidence, I would say, of pretty high stress in the context of school. We would like to see government be more proactive in making changes that improve children's experiences at school. Uh, we'd love to see a focus on wellbeing and inclusion. In a statement, the Federal Education Minister, Jason Clare, says school refusal is complex and attendance have been declining over the past decade in government and non-government schools. He says solutions to improve student wellbeing will be explored with state and territory education ministers during upcoming funding negotiations. Connor Duffy there. Almost 2 million Afghans are being expelled from Pakistan as tensions escalate between Islamabad and the Taliban, forcing a mass exodus to the border. The ABC has spoken to two Afghan women who are refusing to leave and have gone into hiding, worried about retribution from the Taliban because of their work for non-government organisations. South Asia correspondent Avani Dias prepared this report. OK, can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. We can't hear you. All right, Zara, I might... Zara and Parvana are speaking to me online from a flat in Pakistan. They're not going outside, hiding from authorities who are expelling undocumented foreign nationals, the vast majority of whom are 1.7 million Afghans. We've changed their names to protect their safety. Zara says they both worked for international NGOs in Afghanistan before the Taliban takeover in 2021. If we deported back to Afghanistan, so definitely we will arrest it by current regime and they will punish us because our crime was we worked for international organizations. The Pakistan government ordered illegal foreign nationals to leave the country by November 1st, saying they'll be arrested or deported after that date. Around 200,000 Afghans have already crossed the border, but Pavana says she's staying in Pakistan because the Taliban's courts will force her to remarry her abusive husband if she returns. Women have virtually no rights in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. Just want to live in a safe place. I can't live independently right now. I'm like in a jail. 
There's been an increase in militant attacks in Pakistan this year by the Taliban's local affiliate. Pakistan's interim government claims Afghans are responsible for more than half of suicide bombings this year. It says this expulsion is because of security concerns and that it's following international law. The Taliban rejects that and in response to this move released an ominous statement saying, as you sow, so shall you reap. Please, please do not send us back because it is very dangerous for us. It, it was not easy for us to leave our family, to leave our society. Just we want to leave. We don't want anything more. Zara and Pavna are bunkering down. They've applied for an Australian visa, but say they'll do anything to make sure they don't return. I want to call again, international community, please, please don't forget us. This is Avani Dias reporting for AM. And that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm David Lipson. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. Australia's inflation problem has little to do with the spending habits of homeowners because the major drivers right now are things like petrol, rent and the cost of building houses. So why are they being punished with another hike in rates? Today, the ABC's senior digital business reporter, Michael Yander, on the limits of the RBA's blunt tool. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.